Hello and welcome to Folklore of the Universe, the top-rated podcast on MySpace. I'm your host, Kyle, and here we are, episode 5. That's gotta be some kind of a milestone, episode 5, right? I mean, haven't given up yet, it's been a month, I think? So yeah, we're, we're cruising. So this episode, I've got some stories lined up from South America and from Australia, and with that we're gonna finish off the last of the seven continents. Well, besides, okay, six continents, because Antarctica. But there's not really Antarctica folk stories, except for besides maybe The Thing, uh, like the movie. But that doesn't really count, I don't think. Maybe it does, who knows. Uh, there's also, I guess, The Penguins, so you could do, like, penguin folk stories. By penguins, for penguins. But I imagine most of you listeners aren't penguins. So, maybe, maybe not that. We'll just stick to the other six continents for now. For that, let's get started. So this week I've got a Mongol folk story, I've got an Incan folk story, and then I've got an Australian folk story. And we're going to do them in that order, as is usual. First up is the Mongol folk story. This one is called, How the Camel Lost His Good Looks. They say that long, long ago, the camel used to be one of the most handsome animals. He had a long, fluffy tail, and nice and mighty horns. All the animals in the forest and the steppe were envious of the camel. Many of them wanted to have the kind of tail that the camel had, or the kinds of horns that he had. The camel knew of this, and said proudly, You won't find the kind of tail I have, or the horns, anywhere else in the world. But it would have been better if he had not boasted. Once he came up to the river to have a drink of water, and there met a Merrill. I'm invited to a party. Will you lend me your horns just for a while? asked the Merrill. The camel lent him his horns. Later on that very day, the camel met a horse. I'm invited to a party, said the horse. Will you lend me your tail? The camel agreed and stayed on the bank of the river. The Merrill and the horse ran off. All day long, the camel was drinking water and looking at the road while waiting for them. But there was no sign either of the Merrill or of the horse. The Merrill had deceived the camel and skipped over to the taiga. He stayed there forever and never went out into the open steppe. He got accustomed to the horns as if they were his. The horse never gave back the borrowed tail, and when he comes across the camel, he gets frightened and runs away. That is how the camel lost his good looks and sweet temper. The End This story is part of a special category of folk stories, which are meant to explain why things are the way they are. For example, you've got ones like this, how the camel lost his good looks. Others ask a why question, for example, why Bigfoot has big feet. All this is part of this process of people trying to explain things that can't be explained at the time through more scientific or observational methods. The classic example of this is, say a volcano erupts, and people don't understand how geology and volcanoes work, so they explain it by saying that the gods are angry. In this particular story, there's several things to unpack here, so we're going to start small and work our way up to the big ones. While this is a story about camel losing things, it's also a story about these other animals gaining things. So let's start with the Merrill. The Merrill is a type of Eurasian red deer, which lives you know, all across Eurasia. It's very common, gets around. And they do have very, very pretty antlers. Uh, if you look up a picture of one Merrill deer creature... And they've got nice antlers, so you can see why people thought these antlers were so pretty. 
From the story, we can also deduce that the Meryl's habitat is the taiga. This explains why it lives there. And taiga is an environment, sort of a snowy pine tree northern environment, just kind of like this winter wonderland. You find it a lot in Russia, it's sort of the classic example of where all the taiga is, but you find it all across the world in the northern areas. Another part of the story is an explanation for why horses have such nice tails. Allegedly. I've never really thought of horses as having super nice tails. But you know, now that I think about it, they, they do have better tails than a lot of animals. Like, they're better than rats and mongooses. Not as good as dogs, though. Dogs are pretty cute tails. But horse tails are up there, I guess. What's really interesting about the story is how it talks about the horse being afraid of the camel. This is some really neat historical precedents, because back in medieval times, a lot of Middle Eastern or Central Asian warriors would actually go into battle on camelback when they're fighting against horses, or horse people, horse fighters, and the camels would spook the horses. So using camels to scare off horses was an actual military tactic, which is then reflected in this folk story here. And if you think about it from the horse's perspective, it makes a lot of sense, because to a horse, a camel is like this weird, freakish, eldritch monstrosity version of a horse. So that's scary, you know, you don't want to mess with that. Now on to the last part of this, the camel itself. Obviously this explains why camels look so creepy, because they do look like these gangly, irradiated, post-apocalyptic monsters, and why they've got such bad attitudes, and camels are absolute jerks. The big question here is, why would people think that camels looks good in the first place? Why they would have had to have looked nice and then lost those good looks and become what they are now? I think the best theory for this is that there is this human tendency to associate what looks good with what is useful. So for example, you know, like horses, they're really useful creatures and people always paint them as these majestic, powerful creatures. Although some horses are pretty dopey looking. Or it's like how oxen in a lot of literature are these powerful, strong beasts, and they're also very useful. Even now, cars are just a tool for being efficiently transported places. They're just useful, but people also like their cars to look really nice. So there's this base human desire to tie the useful to the sublime and beautiful, where sublime is the impressive and awe-inspiring, beautiful is beautiful. Of course, camels are neither sublime nor beautiful, I mean, just look at them, but they are very, very useful. There's sort of that stereotype about camel caravans going across the desert, but that was a real thing. Camels were essential for a lot of desert trade, and especially essential for the Silk Road, which the Mongols had a big influence in. The Silk Road was the series of trade routes, which brought silk from China all the way across Asia over to Europe. These trade routes often had to cross a lot of desert or other arid places, and for this, camels were essential, especially the Bactrian camel, which were the two-humped ones. Not only were Bactrian camels especially good at surviving these deserts and crossing them, they could also alert the traders when a sandstorm was coming. So the story seems to be a way of justifying why the camel, an inherently useful creature, doesn't look the part. On top of that, it also explains some biological details about Merrill, camels, and horses. There is some moral lessons thrown in here too. All the camel's problems come from his boasting. So this is saying, don't break about your stuff or other animals will steal it from you. Quite a lot to unpack from this little story, but it's time to move on to our next one. This next story is an Incan one. The Incans lived along the Andes Mountains in South America. 
This one is especially fascinating, the story. This one is called The Flood Myth of the Incas. Once there was a period called the Pachachama, when humankind was cruel, barbaric, and murderous. Human beings did whatever they pleased without any fear. They were so busy planning wars and stealing that they completely ignored the gods. The only part of the world that remained uncorrupted was the High Andes. In the highlands of Peru, there were two shepherd brothers who were of impeccable character. They became very concerned when their llamas started acting strangely. The llamas stopped eating and spent the night gazing sadly up at the stars. When the brothers asked the llamas what was going on, they replied that the stars told them that a great flood was coming and that would destroy all creatures on earth. The two brothers and their families decided to seek safety in the caves in the highest mountain. They took their flocks with them into a cave and then it began to rain. It rained for months without ends. Looking down from the mountains, they saw that the llamas were right. The entire world was being destroyed. They could hear the cries of the miserable dying humans below. Miraculously, the mountain grew taller and taller as the waters rose. Even so, the waters began to lap at the door of their cave. Then the mountain grew still higher. One day, they saw that the rain had ceased and that the waters were subsiding. Inti, the sun god, appeared once again and smiled, causing the waters to evaporate. Just as their provisions were running out, the brothers looked down to see that the earth was dry. The mountain then returned to its usual height, and the shepherds and their families repopulated the earth. Human beings live everywhere. Llamas, however, remember the flood and prefer to live only in the highlands. The End This story should almost certainly sound familiar to you, no matter where you're from, because this is a type of story called a flood myth, which is very universal across humanity in general. Flood myths can be found in Mesopotamian mythology, in Greek mythology, in Abrahamic religions, in Hinduism, in Chinese mythology, in Norse mythology, in Quiche and Maya mythology, in Ojibwa mythology in North America, in Muisica mythology in South America, in Incan mythology as you've just seen, and in Aboriginal mythology in Australia. Basically, a flood myth can be found in cultures from every continent on the planet, besides Antarctica, and who knows, maybe the penguins have flood myths among themselves too. This begs the question of why? Why is this such a universal thing? Obviously, there wasn't actually a giant flood that covered up all the land on the planet, because that's, you know, impossible. So there has to be another reason. Unfortunately, no one really knows. There's a lot of theories, but no definitive actual facts towards this. So I'm gonna say what my personal one is. This is by no means right, so take it with a grain of salt, but it is one possible one. Back when people were traveling around and spreading to new continents, the sea levels were a lot lower. This was during the Ice Age, so a lot more ice was locked up in the poles, and the oceans were way lower than they are today, which means that a lot more land was exposed. This is how a lot of people came to the Americas in the first place, by crossing over the Bering Land Bridge, which is where the Bering Sea is today. Around 14,500 years ago, though, the sea level started rising because the Ice Age ended and all the ice started melting, which meant that all this land disappeared under the water, including the Bering Land Bridge. Because of this, we would have had this global phenomenon where people were losing a lot of land to the ocean, which could have been seen as this massive flood, which is where all these stories come from. They've been passed down through cultural memory for all this time. We know that people lost a lot of lands that there was settled to this rising sea levels, because today there's an area called Doggerland off the coast of Great Britain. 
where we keep pulling up all these ancient artifacts from the seafloor. During the Ice Age, all this land was above the sea level and was inhabited. Once the Ice Age ended, the waters rose and flooded all that land, burying it underwater, forcing all those people to either move or learn how to swim. So there's a very real possibility that as global sea levels rose, there was this mass displacement of people, which led to this mass genesis of flood stories across all these different cultures all around the world. As people are very similar and think in similar ways, then people interpret this flooding in similar ways. Which is why in this Incan flood story, and in the Noah flood story from the Abrahamic religions, is the similar theme of a punishment by the gods for humans' wickedness. So this global event, coupled with people interpreting it the same way, is why flood narratives like this are so universal. At least according to this theory. There's other theories out there. This might not be the one. This is just one way of looking at it. And we can't, you know, really know for sure because that's how it goes. This particular flood story, as you can see, is more of a religious one. The flood is a penalty for people not worshipping the gods properly and for being morally corrupt. And we have got the chosen people who are selected by the gods to survive and repopulate afterwards. In this one, people are saved by llamas, which are very important creatures in Andean traditions and society because they're really useful. You know, their wool is good, they provide foods, so llamas are great, and they also will warn you if the apocalypse is coming. Another interesting thing about this is how people survive by the mountains growing taller, which shows how Incan society was based around the Andes Mountains and living up in the highlands, and how central that was to their society. The final part of the story is also, it's another one of those explanation ones. This explains why llamas live up in the highlands exclusively and never venture down, because they're afraid of another flood coming. So it is very interesting seeing this universal story type and seeing how it's been influenced and how it's progressed in its own way based off the local culture this particular one developed in. In the future, I'm probably going to look at more flood myths like this and see how they compare to this one, and also what the differences are, so you can see how each culture has developed these stories in their own ways. And actually, this next story is also kind of a flood myth. This is our Aboriginal Australian folk story. So let's move on to this one now. The story is called The Bunyip. Long, long ago, far, far away, on the other side of the world, some young men left the camp where they lived to get some food for their wives and children. The sun was hot, but they liked heat, and as they went, they ran races and tried to see who could hurl his spear the furthest, or who was cleverest in throwing a strange weapon called a boomerang, which always returns to the thrower. They did not get on very fast at this rate, but presently they reached a flat place that in the time of flood was full of water, but was now, in the height of summer, only a set of pools, each surrounded with a fridge of plants, with bulrushes standing in the inside of all. In that country, the people are fond of the roots of bulrushes, which they think are as good as onions, and one of the young men said that they had better collect some of the roots and carry them back to the camp. It did not take them long to weave the tops of the willows into a basket, and they were just going to wade into the water and pull up the bulrush roots when a youth suddenly called out, After all, why should we waste our time in doing work that is only fit for women and children? Let them come and get roots for themselves, but we will fish for eels and anything else we can get. This delighted the rest of the party, and they all began to arrange their fishing lines, made from the bark of the yellow mimosa, and to search for bait for their hooks. Most of them used worms, but one, who had put a piece of raw meat for dinner into his skin wallet, cut off a little bit and baited his line with it, unseen by his companions. For a long time they cast patiently, without receiving a single bite. The sun had grown low in the sky, 
and it seemed as if they would have to go home empty-handed, not even with a basket of roots to show, when the youth, who had baited his hook with raw meat, suddenly saw his line disappear under the water. Something, a very heavy fish he supposed, was pulling so hard they could hardly keep his feet, and for a few minutes it seemed either as if he must let go or be dragged into the pool. He cried to his friends to help him, and at last, trembling with fright at what they were going to see, they managed between them to land on the bank a creature that was neither a calf nor a seal, but something of both, with a long, broad tail. They looked at each other with horror, cold shivers running down their spines, for though they had never beheld it, there was not a man amongst them who did not know what it was, the cub of the awful Bunyip. All of a sudden, the silence was broken by a low wail, answered by another from the other side of the pool, as the mother rose up from her den and came towards them, rage flashing in her horrible yellow eyes. Let it go, let it go, whispered the young men to each other. The captor declared that he had caught it and he was going to keep it. He had promised his sweetheart, he said. They would bring back enough meat for her father's house to feast on for three days, and though they could not eat the little bunyip, her brothers and sisters should have it to play with. So, flinging his spear at the mother to keep her back, he threw the little bunyip onto his shoulders and set out for the camp, never heeding the poor mother's cries of distress. By this time it was getting near sunset, and the plain was in shadow, although the tops of the mountains were still quite bright. The youth had all ceased to be afraid, when they were startled by a low rushing sound behind them, and looking round, saw that the pool was slowly rising, and the spot where they landed the bunyip was quite covered. What could it be? they asked of one another. There is not a cloud in the sky, yet the water has already risen higher than they would ever known it to do so before. For an instant, they stood watching as if they were frozen, then they turned and ran with all their might, the men with the bunyip running faster than all. When he reached a high peak overlooking all the plain, he stopped to take breath, and turned to see if he was safe yet. Safe? Why, only the tops of the trees remained above that sea of water, and these were fast disappearing. They must run fast indeed if they were to escape. So on they flew, scarcely feeling the ground as they went, till they flung themselves on the ground before the hole scooped out of the earth where they had all been born. The old men were sitting in front, the children were playing, and the women were chattering together, when the little bunyip fell into their mists, and there was scarcely a child among them who did not know that something terrible was upon them. The water! The water! gasped one of the young men, and there it was, slowly but steadily mounting the ridge itself. Parents and children clung together, as if by that means they could have driven back the advancing flood, and the youth who had caused all this terrible catastrophe seized his sweetheart and cried, I will climb with you to the top of the tree, when there no waters can reach us. But as he spoke, something cold touched him. Quickly he glanced down at his feet. Then with a shudder, he saw that they were feet no longer, but birds' claws. He looked at the girl he was clasping, and beheld a great black bird standing at his side. He turned to his friends, but a flock of great awkward flapping creatures stood in their place. He put up his hands to cover his face, but there were no more hands, but only the ends of wings. And when he tried to speak, a noise such as he had never heard before seemed to come from his throat, which had suddenly become narrow and slender. Already, the water had risen to his waist, and he found himself sitting easily upon it, while its surface reflected back the image of a black swan, one of many. Never again did the swans become men, but they're still different from other swans, for the night time, those who listen can hear them talk in a language that is certainly not swan's language, and there are even sounds of laughing and talking unlike any noise made by the swans whom we know. The little bunny was carried home by its mother, and after that the waters sank back to their own channels. The side of the pool where she lives is always shunned by everyone, as nobody knows when she may suddenly put out her head and draw them into her mighty jaws. But people say that underneath the black waters of the pool, she is a house filled with beautiful things, such as mortals who dwell on the earth have no idea of. Though how they know I cannot tell you, 
as nobody has ever seen it. The End We can see that this flood myth has a lot of differences from the previous one. First off, this one isn't so much religious, uh, pissing off the gods. This one is more pissing off some magical animal, the Spunyet, which we will get to later. This one is also kind of the opposite of the last one, whereas the last one was a group of special people who are saved while everybody else is punished. This is where there's a group of people who are punished, while presumably everyone else is fine, because otherwise who's telling the story? Maybe the Bunyips, I don't know. But I assume in this story that there's only this particular group who are punished by this flood and being turned into swans. This flood is also a lot shorter. It's not months and months on end. It's only, like, less than an hour. So it's sort of an economy-timed flood. Of course, there's the one big similarity of both groups bringing it on themselves. It's both through their own misdeeds that the flood happens and that they get punished. Which, again, this seems to be sort of a common factor through all these flood myths. Now, we've got this figure of the Bundyip itself, which in Aboriginal Australian folklore is this water spirit, just sort of this demon-like creature, just sort of a hybrid of a lot of things. Like, this mentions it being like a seal, also a bit like a calf. And different accounts of it describe it in different ways. So there's different animal chimera bits that get mixed in. So there is some degree of variation with the Bundyip. The general common rule across all these stories is don't mess with the Bundyips because they will mess your shit up big time. While they're not actual real animals, it is thought that they are based off of real animals. Similar to how it's thought that dragons are based off of dinosaur fossils, that bunnyips are based off of now-extinct megafauna that used to live in Australia. There used to be all these giant, monstrous marsupials in Australia that died out around the time humans showed up, so either the bunnyip is based off of bones from these creatures, or from memories passed down for the, from the first people who arrived in Australia way back when. These creatures probably couldn't do cursed magic floods, but they probably looked like these monstrous water-dwelling creatures, which inspire these legends. The big thing I got out of this story, moral-wise, is don't mess with baby animals or their mothers will kill you, slash curse you. Which is good advice, because if you mess with the bear cub, you're gonna get mauled. So, you know, leave baby animals alone, unless you want to risk yourself like that. So next time you're eating some veal, watch out, because you might get cow cursed. It could happen. Well, that is all I've got time for for this episode. So once again, thank you so much for listening to this. I really appreciate everyone who's been following along and listening to this so far, so thank you guys so much. As always, if you've enjoyed this, please share it around with your friends and family and neighbors and household pets. And if you didn't like it, you know, give me some feedback on how I can make it better. And that is all. Once again, thank you, and I will see you next week. Bye!